Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and today I'm joined uh, by Greg Outlaw. Um, Greg, I am really excited to be able to talk with you. I was introduced to you through uh, Gons at Canary Cry Radio, and he. Uh, and since then, I've just been fascinated with what you're doing. I told my wife the other day that if after all this, you know, the dust settles, and if there's going to be a future for a Christian internet, I I think it's it's likely that God might use you to to help uh, at least to to get that in motion for us to have a voice uh, in these coming days of of uh, internet uh, darkness, uh, if not other darkness. But anyway, um, I'm I'm pleased to uh, uh, to welcome Greg Outlaw to the show. Hi, Greg. How you doing? Good, Chris. How are you? I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I, I hope I can live up to what you just said. <laughs> sure. Well, why don't we just start off by introducing, uh, just give us sort of a bio of who you are and uh, why, uh, why um, you're doing what you're doing. Sure. So my name is Greg Outlaw. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina, originally. I graduated from the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, and and after graduation, I jumped into computers following my dad. Uh, that's what he did in his company. And then from there, uh, ended up moving to California in 1994 to pursue the dot-com industry and to see what that was about and, and try to like a, a lot of money. And I was really living a prodigal lifestyle, was not really walking with the Lord at all. And so my pursuit was uh, uh, definitely fraught with uh, trouble because uh he was trying to get my attention and I wasn't listening very well. Uh, at the same time, um, we made uh, uh, a lot of good connections and because we were early, one of the first 10,000 websites on the internet and we were connecting people that had money with people that, that had great ideas and we would charge the people that had money like venture capitalists or bankers. And we would use SEO, search engine optimization, to hedge uh, against uh, companies that were competing with us that got huge rounds of financing and we took as as, as little bit of venture capital as, as we could because we didn't want to give away the whole company and um, and we found out that SEO and we didn't necessarily know what it was because it wasn't even coined as a term until 1997 uh, so we were doing this in 1995 um, but what we found is is that when they would burn through all of their monies um, really quickly with banner ads and stuff like that, we would still be ranking at the top. And because of that, we became a going concern. Uh, we were scheduled for an IPO. The same time I'm drinking, I'm doing drugs, and uh, I end up with chronic pancreatitis, and I'm pronounced terminally ill uh, in November of 99. And I go on a big binge and uh, lose it finally at the end of 40 days of, of drugging and uh, I basically fell on my knees and rededicated my life back to Christ. And he showed me during that time uh, that I was reading the Bible this year and a half period where I was dying and uh, on 300 milligrams of morphine in a hospice in my home. Uh, and and uh, he basically showed me that what I was doing on the web, search engine optimization, was really meant for him and it was meant for his kingdom. And I said, so Lord, whatever time I have left on this earth, I'll live it for you. I'll, I'll give it to you. And I said, I don't know how much that is. It doesn't sound like it's very much. And uh, for whatever reason, he chose to heal me in April of 2001 of that illness. And uh, when you had have a pendulum swing like that in your life where one second you're dead and, uh, and the pendulum swings to the other side and you realize, wow, not only did 
did Jesus die for me, but he gave me a second chance on earth to make a difference. Well, there's just something that welled up in my heart and just said, there's nothing that I absolutely won't do for Jesus Christ. And so I started just basing all of my life around him and I forsook all the stuff that I was pursuing and money and, uh, what ended up happening in 2002 is a bunch of people came together and we created a ministry that God had laid on my heart called allaboutgod.com, uh, which became 20,000 pages spanning uh, 50 plus websites in 14 different languages. And people started uh, making decisions for Christ online and we start connecting them uh, to churches all over the world. And today we still connect them. We have, um, 10,000 postal code codes, 1,650 churches within those postal codes that we're sending these people that get saved, we're, we're geo-targeting them. And then a pastor actually answers that person's question when they're responding, make sure that they, they did understand the decision they make, uh, and then invites them into their church, hopefully with the idea of them getting plugged in for discipleship. Because I don't believe in just decisions. If there's not being disciples being made, the Great Commission is not being done. So that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. Right. And uh, just to kind of clarify, because what the ministry started with All About God was a lot of content, what we might think of like content marketing kind of things, writing articles about questions that people are asking on Google. So they might type in uh, like, uh, is homosexuality a sin is a good example that you used to rank number one for, you know, and all those questions at the time, you know, I know a lot of people have probably found gotquestions.org and those kinds of sites. So there's a kind of apologetic sites that Google has, has served them the, these sites. And um, I'm imagining in those early days before a lot of, uh, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the censorship and what specifically is happening there, but I think everybody agrees there has been censorship since then. But in those early days, you know, those were probably just so fruitful to be in front of the people asking the questions, just no filter. You ask a question, here's the answer. And I mean, just uh, uh, storming Satan's kingdom is what those early days would look like, I think, in, the, in SEO. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it was exciting. You know, I, I remember when we first started in 2002 and we, uh, we, we launched with 56 pages. We called it the Genesis launch and uh, everything went to number one. Uh, we ranked number one for Big Bang Theory of Evolution. We ranked number one for Darwin's Theory of Evolution. So all the way from hard science into philosophy, like why am I here? Uh, and then into like who is God, who is Jesus, why Christianity, uh, and then how they can come into a relationship with God. And the idea was to start and, and from wherever they, they, they began and then slowly move them through the gospel. So it would take a lot longer if they started with, a search for Darwin's theory of evolution versus if they came in searching for who is Jesus. Well, that's a really low hanging fruit. And we didn't do just apologetics. We also did uh, hurting people. So people that had like my past was drug addictions or alcoholism, uh, loss of a loved one, loss of a child, you know, infertility, life challenges as well. Cause the Lord had showed me in scriptures. He says, I give, I, give, uh, I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud. And it's like, well, the proud in this scenario is really those people that are, that are hardcore and they're not necessarily interested in listening. But the humble, the humble that he really gives grace to are those people whose life challenges has really just 
disrupted their life in a major way. And at two in the morning, they type in, hey, help me, God help me, or something like that. That is really low-hanging fruit. Their, their eyes are open. Their, their hearts are prepared for the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts of sin, judgment, and righteousness. And these people get saved, you know, miraculously online. And I remember the first one that we saw uh, from outside of the United States was in Azerbaijan. I didn't even know where Azerbaijan was back in 2002. We had to go look it up on a map. But it was so encouraging. And it really was like storming the gates of hell, just like you described, Chris, where you're actually going in there and you're rescuing people right out of the fire, pulling them out. And so you, you would address their question, what they asked, but always, always the goal was to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so through that process, um, you didn't, you know, I, I sort of did it in a, um, oh, I don't know. I was in the video side and I was there, you know, before YouTube, I was in Google video and that kind of thing. I remember the days when, uh, right when the censorship really started because of like Alex Jones's videos on Google video, uh, he would put out a video and it would go straight to number one in the world. And of course that was not acceptable. And it would just, it was the first sort of just blanket, don't let Alex Jones rank kind of thing. But YouTube, when it started, was very democratic, for lack of a better word. And if you could rank for these things like, you know, whatever, did Jesus exist is, you know, kind of things. And it was just so, it, it, it was content. It was still content. You had to do good. You had to do a good watch time. I don't know if they were still concerned about that at that moment, but, you know, uh, they weren't just letting anything rank. But my point with saying that is that you took it to another level. You, Because you had been uh, interested in SEO as a science early on since 1995, it doesn't seem like you have stopped with that interest. You've kept up with what Google's doing now and their new update and this thing and that thing. So you're really in, in with the technical side of SEO. You're still just as much uh, as an expert in that as you, as you were uh, in those early days. Um, so... Uh, that kind of brings us into another aspect of this, which is uh, we all know that there has been censorship happening and it's more of a nebulous thing. I think in a lot of ways, we just know it's happening. But one of the things, because of your unique expertise in SEO, you've been able to really uh, prove some interesting things with what kind of censorship is happening. I know we probably should take it a, a few different directions here, but maybe if you just want to go go with that and see where you take it? Sure. Well, let, let's just start out with saying that, yeah, I, um, so we did our best not to take money from, from all about God. Cause the idea was to keep as much money in there as possible to do translations of the content. So each of us built tents for the longest period of time, uh, so that we didn't have to touch the, the donations that came in for evangelism. And, uh, and so it, it just happened to be that, that I got contracts with very large ministries like Focus on the Family, Compassion International, uh, Biblica, uh, things like this. And, um, and because of that, I really developed an expertise, one that I probably would have been a little more lax in if I was just doing just all about God. But because I had the responsibility of all these ministries, including one was actually got questions. So it did their SEO as well. Uh, no shade. We actually incubated their ministry in our office. Um, so because of all of that, uh, it just seemed like the Lord said, you know, you're going to be like Paul. You're going to build tents at the same time. You're going to do ministry and you're going to be focused on the Great Commission. And so I said, well, yes, Lord, <laughs> my life is definitely not my own because you bought and paid for it, you know, not only physically, uh, spiritually, 
uh, but, but with a healing. So I want to do whatever you want me to do. And, um, and so when I started tracking that we started losing, uh, and, and, and this is not to say that, that SEO is not a battle. It is. It's always a battle uh, when you're trying to pervade and give truth, really, because the battle is not against flesh and blood. I don't consider the battle to be against Google. I really, uh, or Sundar Pichayat, or any of that, even though, you know, clearly they have an ideology that I don't agree with. They're political. Um, their politics are very different than mine. I'm conservative. I'm a Christian. At the same time, I recognize I don't, I'm not fighting against flesh and blood here. There's something more here than just that. And uh, at the end of the day, when I, I started seeing losses in traffic, and this has started back in 2011, really, that we started seeing some losses, uh, we quickly recovered from most of those most of the time. Uh, and found out actually when the AI came on board in 2015 that things were actually a little a little more even-handed. It wasn't an agenda. The AI was not trained at that point in time on a liberal corpus of websites. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually pretty fair in the way that it was treating us. And so for a while, our, all of our rankings went back up spectacularly. And then it's just been since really 2016, uh, and, and a little bit beyond that, that it's really started to tank. Uh, and, and this last year, this past year, 2019, I'm going, I know this is not just happening to me. And I, I knew it was happening to other websites. And I started to do the research. So I investigated 70 different websites that I felt had good, you know, not perfect SEO, but good SEO, competent people at the helm doing their technology. And I looked at all of those and I found out that from June of 2019 to June of 2020, that the organic traffic coming from Google for these websites had dropped an average of 44.8%. I mean, that's a huge number when you think about it, that many. And ours alone um, had dropped actually 83% over that period of that's, time. That's Three huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, can you now that's that's right there the story right there I posted that on Twitter just a minute ago that that screenshot from the presentation Google versus God that uh, you had up on Vimeo um, that's a huge amount you, you show all these these huge websites that have had that major decrease in my website too since since that time now I I guess I obviously have to ask the question what have you done to rule out the various sort of update factors I mean obviously there's you know there's big Google algorithmic changes that could just be generally affecting people across the board, some kind of website speed issues or what have you. So what steps have you taken to rule out and, and sort of pinpoint what this is, why it's happening to Christian sites specifically? So for first and foremost, I did a technical SEO audit of, uh, of these websites. So I wanted to make sure, hey, are there any major glaring problems here that are, that are, are, are introducing uh, pollution into my data because I want to make sure my data is accurate and I found that no actually all of these were very technologically sound from from an audit perspective of SEO from technical SEO I also looked at the speed of those websites and while they certainly could be improved I knew mine because specifically we had been focused on speed in the mobile speed update that was a few years ago uh, and ever since then, we've been really focused on it because really we were reaching every single country in the world. And there's so many countries, especially in Africa, 
where, you know, a gigabyte, you know, data plan that we have here, or even 500 megabytes of data plan uh, is cost prohibitive. You're talking, you know, for a gigabyte, 130% in the Congo, or for uh, 500 megabytes, it was like 40 or 35%, a huge amount of money. Of, of monthly income. In other right. words, it monthly costs you 135% of monthly income in the Congo to pay for a very, uh, not a very much data. Right. And, and all of these websites, while they're, they are not, you know, optimized to our level, because ours is down to 100 kilobytes. That's what a page of ours, that includes all the content, all the images, everything. Uh, theirs are usually like one or two megabytes. And so, um, while that's a factor, I think, for, for international outreach, as long as it's organized well so it loads quickly, you don't really lose and get a lot of bounce rate issues there, which can affect your rankings. Mm -hmm. So I check that as well. And, and while they weren't great, they were adequate. They were certainly more than adequate for the competition. They were, they were similar. Uh, so that was an issue. So I could remove that as, as a, a variable of the equation that might have introduced uh, garbage into the data. So after going through all of that and then looking at the 167 pages of Google's uh, quali quality guidelines, this is basically the 10,000 contractors they hire for like $15 an hour, uh, which usually they have a liberal perspective. They're, they're, they're not Christians. Um, and uh, they're using their subjective judgment based on these 167 pages of guidelines to decide whether a page is quality or not, whether it's misinforming or deceiving users or has some agenda or if it's hateful, you know, hateful like this, um, then, then it could be that. And so when it came down to it, that's the only thing I could come down to. I also correlated when the drops occurred. And so they weren't occurring out of an update, an algorithm update that could be changed, that you could do something to correct for the most part, these 70 websites. They were occurring what's called a core, a Google core update, which Google themselves say there's nothing you can do about a core update. And I believe, and I don't have proof for this, but I believe that means it's, it's not adhering to the 167 pages. It's about content. Mm -hmm. It's about the subjective judgment that the 10,000 contractors are reinforcing in the ranking AI, the rank brain AI, and how that works that is basically turning it into a, against Christians, against conservatives uh, for liberal uh, information. Right. So just to kind of clarify, in... Uh the way I process is, is generally with YouTube. YouTube's two main, in a perfect world, and what had been for a long time, YouTube's main concern was watch time and click-through rate. And just those two things would get you a pretty good uh, idea of which videos should be ranked high. It, you know, your, your click-through rate is a topic and title and a thumbnail that make people want to click it. Hey, this is a topic I'm interested in. And watch time generally says, hey, people are watching this a pretty good percentage, they must like it. So the, it delivered on its promise, basically. And, and But the problem is, is that these new additions of things like, but is that content good for you? You know, these judgment call updates and now has been really the problem. And that's become part of, everybody's starting to realize and talk about that. We're, we're, ta we're talking today when uh, these tech heads are before Congress and uh, more or less hopefully addressing some of these issues. Um, 
and it's mostly about this kind of stuff, the, the non the introducing to the algorithm. And you point out in your presentation, an acronym called EAT. And I think that's where the, the crux of this, this de-ranking is coming down to. So maybe if you could just quickly describe what that is and, and when did that get introduced or was it a slow burn? Sure. I don't think we really know when it's been introduced. The guidelines themselves were leaked a few years ago, and I think that was not on purpose. I think actually it got, I shouldn't say leaked, I think it got, it got put out there and then they decided to own it. Basically, Google did. And then that's when we kind of found out about EAT. So we don't really know how long it's been in play, honestly. And EAT stands for expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. So that means by definition, Google is deciding, does this someone have the expertise to write this particular article or create this particular video? You know, if it's about science, do you have a PhD, right, in science, in biology, or whatever it is, say if it's Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, are you qualified to uh, make this content? Authoritativeness, you know, who links to you? Is it just Christians? Is it, is it also other science websites linking to you? Trustworthiness would, would kind of tie into both of those. They're looking at kind of both of those together and, and determining a score. So there's something called trust rank that Google has a patent for of whether or not this site can be trusted. And, and, and let me stop you there uh, and, uh, just to kind of direct the flow a little bit. I, I, on the one hand, I agree that that in general has its place for Google to put out a good product. Uh, sure. And I don't mind losing, uh, you know, losing rank due to something that genuinely the, the algorithm has determined that that's better because that does put a better product out there. Where is the nefarious part of EAT and how does that sort of manifest itself? I think the nefarious part is, is what they're determining uh, in, in those guidelines. So EAT is one. Another one is YML, YML, YL, but let's just do one on EAT. So I have a quote here. I'm going to read it. So this is out of um, this is out of page 20, section 3.2 of those search quality evaluator guidelines. And quote here it says: High eat information pages on scientific topics should be produced by people or organizations with appropriate scientific expertise and represent well-established scientific consensus on issues where such consensus exists. So. Who decides what's a well-established scientific consensus? Because I know plenty of scientists that are Christians, that are PhDs, that work for ICR, you know, Institute of Creation Research, Creation Ministries, Answers in Genesis, a lot of different places. Hugh Ross, you know, that that they're pretty scientific. They have their PhDs, and and they don't believe with the uh, say narrative of Darwin's theory of evolution or the big bang theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, of course that, and that makes a, a good example of course, is with the recent, um, you know, coronavirus situation, doctors and PhDs that have taken a different stance on this thing or that thing. So then the question is um, somebody needs to be the arbiter of, 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 you know, even in all things being equal cases, somebody's, you know, hitting the gavel and saying this one is correct and this one isn't. Now, how much of that at the moment is is AI? Obviously, AI has to be taught. So, what is that? What's that process looking like, and how does that affect things? Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, when when the AI first came online, it was very even-handed. But over time, you can tell it's been trained on a liberal set of of uh, websites, and also that that training has been reinforced. 
So it's saying it's, it's those 10,000 contractors looking at the pages and the results of those and going, yeah, this looks good. The, the AI judged well here, and, and maybe it's a liberal site you know, that, that is for uh, the theory of evolution. And then they go back over to a conservative site and they see basically an argument defeating you know, the theory of evolution using well-cited sources, you know, Darwin's own words on, on, in his book on the origin of species, all kind of things like that. It's all in Google Scholar, all of these things, but clearly it's a creationist view because it's defeating evolution and it's, it's asking a question at the end saying, so does that mean does God exist, right? And because of that, they're going, well, nope, that's not scientific. That is, that is not a consensus. Therefore, we're going to tell the AI this is not a good page. And so over time, they, they began to train the AI to be more and more liberal in regards to that information. Right. Um, and then you have to introduce, and I've been uh, completely shadow banned on certain accounts and things because of hate speech, which is another factor that they say, if we get even, a, if we determine that you have hate, uh, and of course that's, you can talk about what they might define as that or how they would define that or who says that. But if they do, then they will derank you and there is no recourse uh, for that. If you get labeled that, it's, it's over. That, that's absolutely right. So there, there's something called a, an overall page quality rating uh, that Google assigns that, that is based on YMYL, your money or your life questions. And those could be questions that deal with you making a decision about the gospel, because really there's no greater decision that there is. And, and from, and I, I understand this from Google's perspective and from their, their, their 10,000 contractors. If I was not saved, if I didn't know Jesus is my Lord and savior, I might be one of those people also doing the exact same thing because I don't know any better. I'm deceived and I'm deceiving others, but I really believe I'm doing the right thing. Uh, and so they actually do that. So they're determining with their own subjective judgment, what is truth at the end of the day? And then the idea about hate, it, it, one, one of the quotes that I find so interesting from there, I'll just read just a portion of it. It says, pages that potentially, potentially spread hate, cause harm or misinform or deceive users who receive the lowest rating, no further assessment is necessary. So potentially is just loaded with a subjective judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can just say, oh, well, I don't like the way that sits with me. So that's, that's hate or that's harmful or it misinforms or it deceives. And I just layered a judgment of which there is no algorithmic recourse. There's nothing I can do to fix that other than compromising my message, changing my content. That's the only thing I can do. And I'm not willing to do that. Well, I think that most people can see where this is going. Uh, let's talk a little before we sort of transition into the Resilient Truth Project. Let's talk about what's happening on, in Congress today. The idea, I mean, you hear a lot of talk about uh, breaking up a monopoly of Google or whatever, and it, certainly it is a monopoly and certainly it is a problem. But I can't see this train getting derailed, breaking up the monopoly or not. As you pointed out in that presentation, the algorithm will still exist. The algorithm needs to be destroyed or it doesn't matter how many times you break up Google into smaller entities. Um, so what, what from, from the, let's just, let's just think that there is a solution. Let's be solution oriented from the government standpoint at the moment. What would you counsel a, uh, um, a Senator or whoever had power to do something here? What would you say? 
So from a political recourse, I, I do think they've chosen wisely in, in terms of looking at Section 230 and removing that protection that these big tech platforms have uh, and allowing lawsuits to occur from those people that are feel like, hey, we're, we're being discriminated against. There's, there's obvious viewpoint discrimination here. And it's, it's, it's clear that there is. Um, at the same time, I would counsel those political uh, those politicians that, that that that's not the only solution. It has to be far greater than that. Like you said, the AI would still exist. It would still be trained in a liberal corpus. Therefore, there would still be potential for abuse, even if they allowed Section 230 to be altered. Uh, so secondarily, um, Dr. Robert Epstein, who is a, a behavioral psychologist, very intelligent man, and he has testified before Congress, he actually thinks that they should be split up and, and, and all of those companies open and the, and the source code seeded into other companies so there's real competition. He doesn't go as far as, as destroying the algorithm. Uh, that's my part. So that's where I am. I think the algorithm has to be destroyed in order for it to be a level playing field. And I would go as far as open, open sourcing all of the code that Google has to make it a level playing wow. field. That is a great idea, possibly a pipe dream, but I hope it happens. Um, well, um, I guess I just wanted to ask you briefly about the congressional, your, your approach to provide some information. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, that or if that's leading anywhere or anything like that. Sure. So John Eretz, who is the deputy counsel of Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican senator out of Missouri, uh, who's been really just a uh, a pit bull on on uh, on these big tech companies. Um, he approached me and he said, you know, I talked to him on the phone. He goes, would you be willing to give us this information, show us all of your research and data? And I said, well, I have tons of pages of research and data. It would take you literally forever to go through all of this. Maybe I could actually put some notes or in there or something as well. If you'd be willing to write a paper, that would be huge for us. And so I, I agreed, yeah, I, I would do that after praying about it. I was thinking, well, Lord, you know, I do have this expertise and if it's not me, who's it gonna be? So I'll do it. And, uh, and I did, and I submitted that a couple of months to him, a couple of months ago uh, to, uh, to Senator Hollett. Okay, so let's move on to the Resilient Truth Project. Can you give us a brief overview of what that is and what uh, you hope to see with it? Sure. So uh, let me define resilience first. Re resilience is really kind of a, uh, I, I'll just call it a compound world to, to, make, it, to make it simple. It's, uh, it carries with it the meaning of, of redundancy uh, and also of being resolute. Uh, and so we are, we are resolute in our determination to share the gospel and make disciples online. Uh, at the same time, because of the, what I'll just call viewpoint discrimination, technically I think it's censorship, especially when section 230 gets lifted. Um, that level of censorship makes it impossible for me to do that. Meaning that I need redundant solutions other than the big tech platform. So other than Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Apple, etc. I need other solutions. And, and there's plenty of open source projects out there, not necessarily with, with just Christians or just conservatives. There's plenty of libertarians, very smart, intelligent programmers that are open sourcing all of this code. And so we're looking at the best of these projects and looking at how do we develop something that would basically be free for everyone to use and at the same time afford the mobility to connect individually 
uh, using their own devices, keep their own profile, all of their data private. In other words, there's not really a business model here, so to speak, um, and actually uh, be able to, to brand their own version of Facebook. So um, we might have an all about God, you know, Facebook, right? Or, or a Chris White Ministries Facebook or something like Bible Prophecy Talk Facebook. Um, but at the same time, uh, while, while you would have your own brands, all of these, the underlying technology would allow them to communicate back and forth. So, so let's say I had 20,000 people on All About God's Facebook and you had 10,000 people on Bible Prophecy Talk. They could communicate with you and on each other's platform, but they could also communicate across those platforms and, and communicate with each other. So All About God could communicate with Bible Prophecy Talk, all of its constituents that they choose to communicate with. Right, and this plan is essentially presuming that uh, someday in the near future domain names that we think that we own, but we really lease are going to be canceled. It presumes that hosting contracts that I have with whatever hosting company is going to be made illegal. Uh, 501c3s are going to be revoked, assets confiscated. And essentially, um, the Resilient Truth Project has the worst case scenario in mind. It has already essentially taken that as a given and is asking the question, what do we do in the intermediary steps? And then ultimately, what is the, the final situation? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So we do take things as, um, as serious, probably a lot more serious than other people because we, we've been studying this problem a long time and because we've experienced the level of censorship and viewpoint discrimination and now how pervasive it is. And like I said, I don't hold a, a lot out for political or legal solutions, uh, even necessarily a technological solution other than something that competes. So I think it is inevitable in my worldview that domains will be confiscated for us haters, right? I think it's inevitable hosting contracts will be illegal. I think it's inevitable if you have a 501c3 nonprofit status in a corporation, you know, for a ministry so that you can give tax deductions, it will be revoked. I think it's inevitable that, uh, that assets of those same ministry corporations will be confiscated. I think this is only a matter of time. So I know that sounds extreme and I'm not trying to shock anyone and I'm not trying to say, oh, it's hopeless because it's not hopeless. It is the logical next step. I, I mean, it does sound extreme but certainly uh, the past is prologue. I mean, and, and it, doesn't take, it doesn't take very long to understand that the machinery that's been built up with the concept of intolerance, the sort of watchword of, of the world at the moment and the, and the watchword of this great new world order is built to turn its eye of Sauron on Christians once uh, Donald Trump or whoever their, their outsider is out of the way we're the next target and we will, and that, that system is built to make us the enemies of the world. And we already see that people being deep personed uh, can't bank in online if they have uh, what has been deemed hate speech. So it's not, it's already happening and it's just a matter of, and they've already made it socially acceptable, which is the amazing thing. Um, okay. So what you described though is, seems like it would take a massive amount of infrastructure. I mean, we're talking satellites and <laughs> a whole, 
a whole thing has to be done here. What, what is the solution or how, how is that going to happen? So I agree with you. I think it is massive. So a lot of people are just looking at what's called the application layer. That's the layer that you and I see and interact on like Facebook or YouTube or Google. Right. But the, the truth of this of, of the matter is, is that you have to really fork the entire what's called technological stack all the way down to what's called the physical layer. That's layer one. Those are the, the, the cables and the routers, the wiring that actually is the plumbing of the Internet. And we're in the past when that originally launched, that was decentralized. It was distributed. So no one had control over it. But over time, because of monopolies and because of uh, just the way business works and, and, and company mergers and acquisitions. There really is only six companies that, that deal in that level of infrastructure and three of them are Google, Facebook, and Amazon. So that's three of them. The other three have not demonstrated censorship to my knowledge at this point in time. That's really AT&T, Verizon, and CenturyLink. But really, when you look at it, you have to go all the way down to the infrastructure and while I don't think we have to go to the extreme necessarily at this point of launching our own satellites and all of that, I think that we carry a very powerful mobile devices, all of us today. And I actually think that those mobile devices can liberate the internet. Uh, and you could do actually set up what's called a mesh network that hops from device to device to device over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. So this would work best obviously in a dense city where you have you know, other devices within 300 feet of you where Wi-Fi usually connects, um, but you could actually create a mobile internet infrastructure from those devices, easily run and, and have servers from those devices capable of running in addition to other servers if you chose to. But that's where it's going with mobile devices and the power that we have in our hands today. So, if I understand that correctly, it would be sort of like um, uh, you could probably almost download an app or something, uh, opt into letting your phone be a server for whatever information or files, um, and then promoting essentially other people to do the same thing so that there is a sort of independent network uh, that is essentially piggybacking off the... Uh, uh, so if that was the case, and that sounds great, uh, what are what are the dangers there in an absolutely uh, dangerous world? I mean, is that traceable, trackable, that kind of sure. thing? It seems like it would be just because mobile devices. Right. So, so the danger is there is that you're still using some kind of service to connect. And that's why I said I alluded to being a mesh network over Wi-Fi. I'm not talking about doing this over a cell connection. And I also think that ultimately those little iPhone devices that we all have or Android devices, you know, Google's devices, whether it's Samsung or whoever it is, all of those devices, um, those are compromised. They're compromised from the chipset, from the hardware. There's Chinese products in that. We already know from Intel, there's massive infiltrations into all of those chips uh, that make up all of those phones. So really I'm looking at, uh, there's a company called Purism, uh, and Purism has a device called the Librem 5, L-I-B-R-E-M 5. And we have two of those devices and we're prototyping on those devices because they have their own foundry, their own chip founder, or they're getting ready to set one up. That's going to basically clear out all of those chips will be made in-house. 
Uh, they'll be protected. These guys are, they're not Christians, but they're focused on liberty above all and privacy. Uh, and so they value that just as we value that. And just really as, as we all should value it uh, when, you, when you think about it. So I think it has to ultimately get where everybody's willing to throw away their iPhone, their Android device, buy one of these Librem 5 devices uh, and, and basically you know, download our app or your app. Like I said, it could be anyone's app as long as we have the technological connection that allows them all to communicate together. And then we're basically setting up a mobile, a mobile infrastructure, a mobile internet. Hmm. And that would be secure and safe. And it, because it would be encrypted and because it's hopping through Wi-Fi, it could also be obfuscated that it would be hard to track you or find out or target where you were. So it ultimately does come down to a new piece of hardware has to be developed that isn't itself compromised. And then piggybacking off Wi-Fi uh, is safe-ish, if not entirely safe, as long as the right things are taken, precautions are taken. Uh, that's really good. It's good to understand that. And um, I want to talk about how people can support that or help that. But first, is there any additional uh, things that you can talk about or prototypes or other things about how you envision um, that this working? Sure. So I try to go through two segments because it seems like, wow, how do I go from, you know, my iPhone that has all the apps that I use all the time to something that may not have all of those apps, right? I'm not going to have Facebook anymore. I'm not going to have this anymore. And I think there's, there's degrees of resilience. So you could take good, better, and best steps. So we've outlined kind of those steps over six different categories that would suggest, you know, here's how we do identity resilience. Because at the end of the day, most people have Gmail. And if Gmail, if Google, obviously that's Google, if Google chose to revoke your credentials and you've signed up to a bunch of services using your Gmail account, you no longer have access to those services and there's nothing you can do about it. So a good step toward identity resilience would be to get off of Gmail, start using something like ProtonMail that you're paying for that's encrypted end to end uh, and that it's, it, nobody can track you through what you're doing and no one can revoke your credentials. Um, a, a good step toward um, something like discovery resilience would be to adopt some of these platforms like IPFS, which is, stands for Interplanetary File System. Uh, which is our file service, which is a, a service that a bunch of different people run servers and, and these phones, these Librem 5 phones would be capable of running these services where everyone's search box not only searches your own content, but has the ability to search everyone else that's part of this network's content. So you're basically disrupting Google and every single website not only becomes its own Facebook, it becomes its own Google. And obviously the network effects of more and more people joining into this makes it more robust and makes it more competitive and makes more information available. So I really think that, that these are steps that can be taken. And so an example of that step, if you were to, to search for who is Jesus on Google and go to um, allaboutjesuschrist.org, uh, which is somewhere on page one there, click on that, scroll to the bottom of the page, uh, and there's actually six icons. They, they, they start out with three social media icons. The other three icons are IPFS mirror servers. And you can click on one and you'll find out, hey, 
this same content exists on a totally different domain name, not, not one that, that I control or anyone else controls. It's controlled by IPFS, that, that system. Somebody set it up. And uh, all of my content can be found there and discovered there and searched there. Uh, and so that kind of takes the problem away of, hey, I just lost my domain. Hey, I just lost my hosting because I'm still online. And, and that provides a solution that works now. Right. And there's all kinds of these sites like BitChute and Library, LBRY, um, for video stuff and, and other things like that. And they're kind of, if I understand it right, kind of like a, a BitTorrent kind of client, or at least ostensibly BitChute is. Uh, library is more obviously doing that. Um, also, I don't know, have you heard much about the like Ethereum kind of idea of hosting things via Ethereum crypto stuff? I looked into it briefly. It looked like there was a major limitation in terms of file sizes and those things. Do you see any future for that kind of platform? Yeah, I think all those platforms would develop. And, and I really think a, a good model of resilience basically decentralizes or distributes your content across all of these platforms. That really is the goal. Because the more decentralized, the more distributed your content, the more redeployed your content is, the greater discoverability you'll have, the greater uh, resilience you'll have. No one can choose to take you down uh, just uh, arbitrarily. Uh, and I think that's just wisdom. That's prudence in the day and age that we live in, in this age of deceit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Uh, let me see what I have here. I won't want to keep you for too much longer. Do you have, um, before I get to some, some closing stuff, do you have anything in addition in that you would want just people to know? I, I guess basically, I guess the question is, a lot of people are at this point saying, well, what's the bottom line? What can I do? How can I help? And what are some actions that people can do to help make this a reality or to do whatever they can do to help? So we're, we're prototyping and it's not just us. There, there is a round table that's being formed uh, of ministries that have already been impacted. And, and so it's not just traditional ministries, say big names that you've heard, um, you know, uh, like got questions or somebody like that. I'm talking about, you know, it, it could be uh, anybody in the, the fringe community, anyone that, that, you know, wants to deal in conspiracy theories. Um, you know, I, I would, I'd like it if they would be, you know, sane about the, some of the conspiracy theories. But, but regardless, you know, I, I think anyone can participate. We really want to protect free speech. We want to protect privacy. And we want to say, hey, we cannot do this alone. And the truth of this is, this is a massive project. It involves hardware, you know, and software, you know, all the way from, from, from the application layer, all the way down to the physical layer. It is not a simple problem to solve. And we've been working on this problem since 2006 in some shape, form, or fashion, just over time thinking through this. I have a 130-page document uh, that I've gone through since writing this thing. And as new technology comes out, I add to it or, or, or re-edit it. And so it's a living document that's kind of moving forward. But by no means do we have it all figured out. What we really need is we need the body of Christ uh, at a minimum coming together in unity saying, hey, I, I, I'm interested in helping build these new platforms. I want to participate. And, and maybe it's they have expertise and they're great programmers. Hey, we need that. Maybe they have money. Hey, we need that, that we could hire those great programmers or we could pay some for these open source projects to help go our way. 
uh, in, in terms of things that we might need. As much as possible, we're trying to use the open source community, but, but there's some things that they're not thinking about that we are thinking about that we think are critical, where there has to be some customization in order for it to work for Christians that, well, share your worldview, because I do. I'm pre-wrath in my eschatology. So I think I'm going to be here for quite a while, <laughs> and therefore I need a way to be resilient. I need a way to share truth online. I need a way to transact, to financially transact, whether it's through cryptocurrencies or some other method. I have to figure out all of that. So a big part of that is financial resilience as well. So really, I think if anything, it's a, it's a clarion call to say, hey, Let's quit building our own kingdoms, quit doing our own thing. Let's each humble ourselves, say we really truly need each other. Let's be Jesus's answer to his own prayer in John 17, that they would be one, right? And then it says when we came together as one, that, that the world would recognize that the Father sent the Son. I think that's the moment in history that we are in right now. And I think God is doing a work and he is humbling people's hearts. He's humbling large ministries, small ministries, just everyday people like myself. And he's going, we need each other. We need each other now more than ever. Amen. Uh, where can we go? What's the, where's the hub that they can sort, sort of gather? Who's going to facilitate these conversations? Uh, I guess I'm looking for domains or emails. Sure. So uh, start with me, uh, Greg at allaboutgod.com. Uh, that would be the first one, G-R-E-G at allaboutgod.com. Uh, and my phone number, 719-244-7788. If you prefer texting, text me or email me. If you email me, please text me as well, because I get a lot of emails. So <laughs> that would be really helpful. And from from there, I'm going to be introducing people, but, but there are websites live like resilienttruth.com. If you want to give and be like, hey, I've heard it, you know, I, I, I don't have expertise, but I believe in the vision and you just want to give, go to allaboutgod.com and click on donate and, uh, and just give and, and then let me know in a note down there, hey, this is for Resilient Truth. I believe in the vision and I want to help. Great. All right, everybody, that is Greg Outlaw. Thank you, Greg, for being with us today, and I hope everybody checks it out. Uh, Resilient Truth, all about God. Thanks again.